Ronananian. An oil change is still the single most important thing you can do to the car. I don't care what the dealer tells you. I don't care what your father told you. I don't care what you think you know. Trust me, an oil change is still just that important. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now... Thank you. Thank you very much. Here's Ronnie. Hey, wasn't that my line? Hi, Ronnie Haney and the Car Doctor here. 855-560-9900 is the phone number. Call now. Get in on the Car Doctor hotline, that 24-7 number. I should point out once again, as always, that the 855-560-9900 is 24-7. It's there if we're not on the air. We're live Saturday afternoons, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. But if you call outside of show time, Fast Terry, our executive producer, Emeritus in Abstentia, he's uh, off on vacation this week, will uh, give you a call and uh, set you up in the lineup for the following week's show as we uh, talk to you about your car problem. That's really what we like to do. That's what this radio show is about. We want to get you up on air, and don't be nervous. It's just radio. And um, we want to talk to you about your problem because we want to educate everybody about it and get everybody involved because we think there's a lot of education that needs to be done in this industry, obviously. Uh, you know, the day I retire is the day, I guess, when we won't need to fix cars anymore, which Tony's looking at me shaking his head going, uh-uh. So it's uh, not anytime soon. More information about us, cardoctorshow.com. Also links there to various places. Of course, we podcast. We've made podcasting available for you, and you can get it any one of a number of places. Tune in, iHeart, iTunes, Google Play, and you can get out to our website, cardoctorshow.com, and find links to all of those podcasting sources as well as other things going on about the radio show. But we are here to talk to you about your problem. Listen, if you're a newbie and you're just turning on the radio for the first time, here's the deal. I've been fixing cars since, well, I've been fixing cars longer than I have been fixing cars, about 43, going on 44 years now. I started out as a kid at 16, and uh, here I am uh, just uh, moving into my sixth decade here on the planet. So you guys do the math and uh, figure it out. But uh, it's all about what I see in the shop, what I go through. And, you know, I'll tell you things I like, tell you things I don't like, and we can talk about it and, um, you know, kind of come to some kind of a conclusion. But I'm really just here to talk to you about your car and just help you fix it. That's really what this show is about. I was wondering this week, it was vacation week. We were closed the shop this week and gave everybody off and we all went in our own directions. And I like vacation week. It gives you a chance to kind of reflect and pause and recharge and rejuvenate and I couldn't help because we did a staycation. We stayed home, but, you know, just just worked around the house and caught up on things and, you know, just stuff. And I couldn't help but notice as I drove around here in New Jersey, and, you know, that's where we are, that you can see the end of the industry. Or, or it's changing. Maybe change is a better word. And I was really thinking about this. You know, who's going to be the last man standing? And by that, I mean somewhere 50 to 75 years in the future, when they look back in the early part of the 21st century, somebody's going to say, hey, remember an auto repair shop? Wow. (laughs) 
you know, and, and you can sit there and shake your head and say, nah, that'll never happen. Really? How's Blockbuster doing? Right? How's Horn and Hard Art? Horn and Hard Art, the automat, if you're a New York City kid, right? Walk in, put a nickel on the counter, they slide that sandwich with a little glass door. And you start thinking about all the businesses that have gone away. And you say to yourself, maybe auto repair isn't such a, a, a an impossibility. But what would that look like? And I just think, who's going to be the last man standing? One of the things I noticed is every jerk in the last 20 years that's had a repair shop, and I drove past, whether it was a five-store chain, the brake specialist, the guy who was going to do the oil change cheaper than everybody, the guy who was going to do tires cheaper than everybody, they're all gone. And their buildings are either abandoned or demolished, and there's a bank there. We also seem to have more banks than we need, which is beyond my comprehension, but it just I guess it's the safest trend. But you have to say to yourself, so how smart were they? Well, I guess one person could argue that they were pretty smart because they were able to make their money or lose their money, and they got out and they're retired and they're sitting on a beach somewhere listening to the sounds of my voice laughing, saying, look at that jerk on the radio. Or they went out. They're out of business and they're doing something else and that's an abandoned piece of property that'll sit there for the next 10 or 15 years until the family gets done fighting after the guy dies what to do with it. But it's still not a repair facility. It's still not a place that somebody can go and get their car fixed or it's not something something contributing to the economy in terms of a positive source of of, of you know jobs and, and, and income, and it's not generating anything. So 50 to 75 years from now, they're going to look back and they're going to go, you know, where did all this start? Where did we get the flying cars? Where did we get the self-driving car? And it'll probably start on a cold October morning when Grandpa looks down and sees his kids telling the car, one of your transistors needs to be replaced. Get yourself over to the repair shop so the guy can swap out your module. And the car will go, yes, master, and off it'll go. And Grandpa's going to go, you know, there was a time that I took my car into the repair shop, and his grandchildren are going to laugh at him and say, oh, come on, Grandpa, nobody actually took their car to a repair shop. Blockbuster, Horn and Hard Art. And if I sit and think about it longer, all the places that aren't in business that we don't need. I read an article the other day on MSNBC that they're predicting in very short time Manual transmissions won't exist in the country anymore. You're not going to see a manual transmission car sold. Do you know that the Ford F-150 is not available with a manual transmission anymore? The bread and butter cowboy pickup truck doesn't come with a stick. How can that be? So don't say you'll never see the you'll you'll see the end of the repair shops as we know it. Don't say that you'll never see them again. But start thinking about it. Look around your neighborhood. We're in New Jersey. I can drive around and I can tell you every place that's a bank or a convenience store that used to be a gas station. You'll probably see it in your neck of the woods that, you know, gee, there used to be a repair shop there. or Whatever happened to Phil or whatever happened to Bob or whatever happened to Jose, why isn't that repair shop there anymore? I went to dinner a couple of weeks back with other repair shop owners and we're talking about the business. We're all grayheads now. We're older. And we're all talking about how we started. Because I guess you tend to look back and reflect a little bit when you're, you've been doing this long enough. 
you know what? When I opened up the shop, I needed a toolbox, some wrenches, a screwdriver, a set of hammers. You had to have a hammer. You had to hit something. And, you know, gee, a voltmeter and a tire machine. You know, it was it was minimal. Today, the majority of kids I see, they're going into dealerships. They're all, you know, if it's not a family business that they're becoming part of, I don't see any kid coming out of trade school going down to the bank borrowing half a million dollars and, and starting a business. I'm sure it's happening, but my point is it's not happening in the volume that it did 35, 40 years ago. And it can't because the cost to run a repair shop is just too darn high. So will it be dealer only? And when that filters out all the talent, and nobody wants to fix cars anymore, then they'll make the case for self-driving cars that are strictly electronic, strictly modular, and if you can still fix an internal combustion engine, my God, it'll be like your Merlin. It'll be like black magic. Just something to think about. Auto repair shops, 21st century. Is this that moment in history? Are we witnessing it here and now? I think we are. 855-560-9900. I'm going to pull over and take a pause. When we come back, we're going to kick those garage doors wide open and still fix cars while we can. I'm Ron and Andy in the car doctor. Don't go away. The Car Doctor, rolling along, 855-560-9900 on our All Elvis Bumper Music Weekend. Thanks to our chief engineer, Tom Ray, and uh, we put that out there for the king. This is the anniversary of his passing, and uh, this past week, I think it was, and, um, you know, gosh, I don't know how many years it's been, far too many. Uh, Tom must know. Tom's coming over to the mic. The uh, August 16th, 1977. Wow. I was... Uh in high school, just about uh, ready to start uh, my job, at my first radio job, and he was scheduled to be uh, in a concert in Hartford, I believe, on the 18th or 19th. Wow. I, I was in the second grade. I can't, I can't believe on. it's that long. I was in college. I'm the old man here, so I can tell. I was fixing cars, though. I can guarantee you that. I don't know exactly where I was, but I was still fixing cars. Let's go fix some cars anyway. Let's go over and talk to Kathy on line one with an 01 Ford Windstar. Hi, Kathy. How can I help you? What's going on? Hi, Ron. How you doing? Good. What's cooking? Good. Uh, well, I have the 2001 Ford uh, Windstar. Right. The transmission came on. So uh, I'm calling you a little early. I take it in for a diagnostic. Right. But one of the things that they talked to us about was if we have the transmission flushed, it might do more harm than good. It was flushed at 72,000 miles, but it has not been flushed since. And it has 187,000 miles on it. I thought it could not hurt just to get your point of view. Well, so does the car run okay, Kathy? Does it shift normal? Any problems in performance? Yes. Which? Really. I'm sorry, which? That it, it runs okay, just the transmission light is on? Yes. Um, yes. So has anybody pulled fault codes out of it? 
hold what again? Fault codes. If the trans light is on, if, if fault the, codes. Right. If 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 it's if it's got the equivalent of a check engine light for the transmission on on the dashboard, uh, there's going to be a fault code in there. There's something that triggered that. Oh. Right. Okay. Nope. Have not done that. Yet. Okay. Uh, you know, at 187,000 miles, my concern, you know, is listen. It, it it shifts okay, but it's it's seeing a trans light on. Now, stupid question. It's not the overdrive indicator light, is it? Somebody didn't hit the overdrive indicator button, and you've just got it so the overdrive won't engage, is it? I uh, don't know the answer to that. I mean, I guess we can look at I, that. I think um, I think there is an overdrive button that will prevent it from going into overdrive in the shift indicator itself, in the shifter itself, I believe in the end of it, or somewhere on the dash uh, that vintage Windstar had a, you know, if you hit this button, it won't allow it to go into overdrive if you're towing or hauling or something like that. And okay. could it be something as simple as just the dash button has been hit and that's why the light's on. But if that's not the case, if there's if the light's on, then that means there's a fault that the trans or the engine control module detected and it should get a code scan to look and see. You know, it's sort of let's take its temperature, stick out its tongue, say ah, and say, you know, what's broke. And and, and then we can have okay, conversations about have... the rest of it. Go ahead. It has uh, the O slash D um, light is flashing. It says off, O slash D off. So is that the overdrive indicator? Right. That's the overdrive indicator. But now that vintage Windstar, if the light's flashing, that generally, usually, most of the time, <laughs> means there's a fault in the trans module or a fault mechanically in the trans, and it's been detected. So first things first, somebody needs to plug in and do a system scan. And the reason I say a system scan is let's look at all the modules. Let's let's see. There's probably there's not really a lot in 2001. There's probably 15 to 18. It it's it's not like today where the cars today have 40, 50, 60, 115 electronic brains on them. But I would do a system scan on that car to see what fault code is there. You ever notice when you go to the doctor, Kath, and, you know, you got an earache, they still take your temperature and your heart rate, and they make you stick out your tongue and say, ah? Right. S same thing, all right? When you, when, you take okay. your, when you take your car in for service today and it's getting a diagnostic, the better shops will scan all the modules because that's how they find that current problem and they find the next problem before it becomes one. I see. Okay, All right. good information then. And, and, and then we can talk about, you know, would flushing the trans fix it? And probably not. If the light's flashing, generally it's an indication of something bigger and, you know, uh, more expensive than that. But, you know, once you tell me what fault code is there, uh, then we can kind of talk about it. If I were to guess, I've got a feeling you're going to come back and tell me that it's a P0741, which was very common in that trans um, torque converter, clutch solenoids, and converters, and things like that that were bad. So, uh, you know, just just be mindful. But have them scan it for codes, and then give me a call back next week. All right, sounds great. All Thanks right. so much for your help. You're very welcome. Good luck, and keep me posted. Let's go over and talk to Clyde. Clyde, Lewiston, Idaho. I've been waiting for you. How are you, sir? Well, I'm fine. Things are well. I really appreciate your show. And... Did I? Did you get the email I sent you with all the details on this? Yeah, but you know, here's what I don't. Here's what I don't get because I was I was doing some research, and for those just joining us, we've been working with Clyde in his car for the past three weeks. 
Uh, when I look at a wiring diagram for the mass airflow on that, Clyde, and I went back and I revisited it, Yeah. Um, pins 3 and 4 should have 5 volts on them. Pin 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 1 is the intake air temp sensor. And that's, mm-hmm. that's going to change with temperature. Pin 2 should have a volt and a quarter key on engine off, and it should go a volt and a half to a volt and three quarters engine running, and you don't have that, do you? That's right. The engine off voltage is only about a quarter of a volt. Right. So either you've got – now, where are you measuring that? Are you measuring that at the – at the connector at the mass air, or are you measuring that back at the control unit? On the mass air. Okay. And I know you said you tried another mass air, right? I did. And yeah. you got the same result. Well, there's been a new development. Let me tell you about okay. it. Okay. Well, let me just finish my train of thought, because okay. when, sure. I, when I look at that mass air, pin two, no matter how I look at it, is is the potentiometer. That's the variable resistor. Right. You, you should be able to push on that door because mm-hmm. this is a door-style mass airflow right. sensor, okay? You should be able to push on that door and cause a voltage increase, and if it was if it was the right voltage from a volt and a half all the way up to 5 volts in a sweep, it should sweep correctly. Mm-hmm. So I come back to, even though you've tried two, I, I still see it as a as a mass air issue. What What development came up? Well, I put in a new... Uh, CTS. Okay. And I guess before that, the, it, it got even wilder. Instead of it would oscillate, it would went, run on up to three grand, and then it would s- drop down to a thousand and run up again, and it would keep doing that. It made it almost impossible to drive it. Okay. And so even though the CTS tested good at both cold and hot, I put in a new one. And now that changed the operation. Now it doesn't go real wild, but it won't it won't idle when it's cold. That is, you got to nurse it with your foot on the throttle, and then it's better. It's not right yet. Well, then I'm going to tell you. Obviously, you got to look at the resistance of that coolant temp sensor. Make sure that's dead nuts on the money. But I would take a very hard look at that mass air, why that's only a quarter volt, Clyde, because that's not right. And to me, that's the next step in your problems. Keep me posted along the way. I've got to go. I'm up against the clock. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor, we're back right after this. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. Let's go over and talk to Dan Burlington. I think that's Burlington, Mass., and uh, see what's going on here. Uh, Dan, how are you? Welcome. Ron and Andy and the Car Hello, Doctor. Hello, Ron. Sir. What's Thank going you for on? taking my call. Yes, sir. How can I help? I got a 2017 Honda Ridgeline that I just purchased. Okay. And the oil viscosity recommendation is 0W20. Right. My concerns are, are these to boost fuel, corporate average fuel economy ratings, and get every mile per gallon they can out of them, or is there going to be is this going to pose durability issues down the road? In addition to that, when should I do my first oil change? Should it be a synthetic blend or full synthetic? Um, 
I know, I believe I've read in other countries they're using a higher viscosity oil where there's warmer climates. So that's what tipped me off with the corporate average fuel economy and uh, those concerns. Well, let's yeah. let me let me attack them in no particular in no particular order, Dan. Um, first oil change. I still like to do the thousand mile oil change. Now Honda a few years ago started playing the card about they've got break in oil in and they don't okay. want it, they don't want it taken out until the four or five thousand mile mark. I've never actually seen a bulletin that supports it. I've heard it from more than a few people. I've got right. no, I've got no documentation about it. It's always in the back of my mind. Uh, you know, but I'm still a, you know, I'm still a believer in early oil changes. So the best okay. answer I've got for you, you know, you've got to do your research and due diligence and make up your mind. It, to me, it seems kind of strange that I hear that there's a break in oil. And, you know, the world is filled with rumors, but yet I can't mm-hmm. find any documentation to support it. So that 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 bothers me. That be, okay. That being said, uh, you know, anything but a Honda, I'm still changing oil at 1,000 miles. And and I, I like that early oil change for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I still feel the need to get oil out early um, to remove any contaminant, to remove anything that might have built up, to remove anything that the engine manufacturer assembler didn't take out when they put it together. Uh, sure. Number one. Number two, I also like the look around. To me, that's what the first oil change is about. It's that look around. It's that, did everything seat right? Did everything get assembled right? Did, is anything mm-hmm. rubbing where it shouldn't be rubbing? Uh, you know, I still remember my 2004 Suburban some 12 years ago. First oil change at 1,000 miles, put it up in the air, and lo and behold, the power steering pump was wet where the two halves came together. I didn't do anything okay. about it, but I noted it, and by the next right. oil change, it had finally dried up and gone away, and it was just... It was assembly, or it just hadn't sealed during manufacture, but it was just something I noted before too much time went by. So that's my argument for the early oil change. So would you do it at 1,000, and then how often thereafter? Well, then let's talk about what kind of oil you're going to use. You're going to use synthetic, all right? Okay. I'm not a believer in blend. I think blend was created for those people that want to keep buying those $7 cups of Starbucks coffee but not really take proper care of the car. If you've got money to go to Starbucks, you've got money to put synthetic in the car and throw the synthetic blend out. You just don't need it. All right. Any particular brand you like? Or? I like Pennzoil. I think Pennzoil's got it going on. As a matter of fact, you know, I was just reading before the show today uh, their information sheet about 020, and I've got it in front of me. And they talk about pistons. And see, this is, you know, when you buy oil, and there's a lot of choices out there, you're buying, right. you're buying the company and you're buying the engineers. You know, and the longtime listeners are like, oh, God, he's on that bandwagon again. But it's the truth. You're, you're buying the engineering that's behind that company. And Pennzoil's engineers have attacked the problems of today's engines by starting with a natural gas derivative base stock. You know, that's how oil's made. If you ever want to really understand motor oil, uh, go take a look and, you know, see where they start talking about how oil's made and they start with a base stock. It's like making chicken soup. And then they put their ingredients in, and they put their vitamins in, and you know, mother's love, and you feel sure. better, and the car runs a is, long is that time. A, is that a group? Is that a group four oil, or is it? Uh, you know, I'm not sure off the top of my head. All right. Okay. Um, I'm looking at the stat sheet here. Let's see, zero twenty, pure plus. My point was where I was going to go. Uh, I say viscosity grade service category. Uh, you know what? For the sake of radio, GF five. I think it's a group five. Um, okay. Uh, I think it's a Group Five oil, which is obviously above four. If that's the if that's the spec they're would, talking about, um, would you stay away from Would you stay away from the Super Tech offered by Walmart? 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. um, and, and only because it might be great oil, but I don't know who's making it. I can't see any sure. spec sheet on it. I don't know the history of it. Uh, right. One of the things that I noticed with Pennzoil, which is where I was going with the conversation, is right in their 020 spec sheet keeps pistons uh -huh. up to 65% cleaner than required by the toughest industry standard. Everything today is piston and piston rings. When we when we start talking about cars with problems and and oil consumption and failure, it always seems to come back to pistons and piston rings. The manufacturers, and you hit the nail on the head before at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about CAFE, corporate average fuel economy. Right. And they're all trying to run as lightweight oil as they can, but they're also running a low-tension ring. Low-tension rings, lightweight oil, less drag, more fuel economy, better engine performance, and so on. So it, it all plays hand-in-hand. Hand. Now, it's interesting that you can take an engine rated for 020, mm -hmm. put, put 520 in it, and actually create an oil consumption problem. How's that, okay. how's that for a brain twister? Because what <laughs> happens is the low-tension ring doesn't have the ability to hold back the higher viscosity. Okay. And scrape the cylinder walls clean, and it actually creates an issue. So, so the viscosity answer becomes run what the manufacturer says, especially early in the vehicle's life. So we, you wouldn't you wouldn't be opposed to using zero twenty for the life of this, and uh, no, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be opposed to using zero twenty for the first hundred and fifty thousand. Okay. And then and then we'll see where we are. Then I'm not going to lie. There's certain cars. There's certain applications where I might have started that car on a 020 or a 520, and then I've bumped it up viscosity for one reason or another. Maybe they're starting to – maybe you're using it differently. Maybe you started out as a, as a mommy mobile taking the kids back and forth to school and soccer, and then all of a sudden it became, uh, you know, maybe not in the case of a, of a Ridgeline, but it became – well, it could be in the case of a Ridgeline. All of a sudden it was doing heavy towing and hauling. And it got more work, so I might go to a higher viscosity. It even got a little older and a little looser. But, uh, you know, I make those decisions on things I see during service. You know, okay. listen, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's things I can't explain. It's, it's, you know, to me, mechanics are, you know, we're there. We're supposed to look at the whole car in general and keep it in mind. You know, and it, it, this is my argument about when I talk to people about getting cars serviced and repaired. There's there's two kinds of service and repair in this country. Either they know your name or you're a number. So it's mm -hmm. like it's like walking into the deli department and they go, now serving number seven. Or they, you walk in and they go, hey, Dan, come on over. Let me, let me uh, tell me how much, you know, what kind of cold cuts you want and how to slice the cheese. They know who you are. They know what you want. And Would you, after the thousand miles, change how often would you change it thereafter money's no object money no object i'd, I'd do it if, i'd do it at four thousand mile intervals and see what it looks like when it comes out okay now under extreme temperatures and hotter climates is zero twenty adequate yeah i mean they're rating it you, you, go read the spec sheet get out to right. get, out, get out to penzoil ultra platinum or get out to, i'm okay. sorry get out to penzoil's website uh, Pennzoil Ultra Platinum is the oil I'd like to see you use, but get out to PennzoilSynthetics.com is the website, PennzoilSynthetics.com. And now, you can sit there and have a field day reading about their viscosities and their oils. In terms of oil filters, all the top filters pretty close to one another, or is there a brand that's head and shoulders above? Wix. Wix, Wix, is, is Wix, Wix has done their homework. Wix is manufacturing filters for other manufacturers. 
you know, Wix is the filter of choice in the shop. And now, would you go with the conventional Wix or Wix XP? If in your case, I'm probably going to tell you Wix XP because I think it would make you sleep better at night. But the, a, okay. regu- a regular Wix filter is is more than fine, more than adequate. Okay. All right, especially for a guy that's going to change it every 4,000 miles or sooner. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just keep with that. I'll dump it at a thousand and then do it every four thereafter and right. hope for the best. And and when you change it at four, take a look at the color. If it's coming out clean at four, yeah, go to five. Right. That, that depends. Just depends on yeah. The, the Penn's oil's doing its job. But by any the, advantage of going before mm, one thousand on the oil change? Nah, I don't think so. I think it's a waste. Okay. And there's probably people out there listening to my voice right now that would argue with me and tell me I'm a jerk because I'm telling you to do it at a thousand. But you know, I'm old school in some in some cases. Because I think. I think Corvettes, I think they recommend 500 for their first one. Yeah, and that's a different animal altogether unto itself. Right. So don't okay. don't don't compare what you did to your last car and don't compare what your neighbor's doing to his car unless it's the same car when it comes to right. automobiles and maintenance today. Everything is a unique, special sort of way. All right, Dan? Very good. Thank you for the help. You're very welcome, sir, and uh, we'll talk to you again sometime. I'm Ron Annie in the Car Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Ronanini and the car doctor, you know, in, in reference to Dan, who just called about the oil for his Honda Ridgeline, and we were having a conversation last week, you and I, about variable valve timing. Uh, this comes to me from Steve up in uh, Maine, who sent me an article from the folks at Amsoil. They were talking about uh, variable valve timing and other complexity for motor oils. And um, it's interesting. Like people, the article says, engines must also breathe. To combust one gallon of gasoline, an average engine requires approximately 10,000 gallons of air. And it goes on to talk about the complexity of what's going on. And part of the article states, variable valve timing is a decades-old technology that was introduced to overcome the inherent limitations of fixed valve train systems. It's steadily grown and can be found in nearly all 2011 vehicles. And it goes on to talk about the implications of what really happens. VVT systems are complex arrangements involving many intricate components, and they often involve oil-actuated hydraulic devices to control valve motion. They are generally non-serviceable, and many common problems associated with VVT systems, are you ready? Wait for it, are linked to poor oil or filter performance. Sludger deposits can plug the solenoid screen or on galleries and impact the operation of VVT mechanisms. This not only disrupts performance, it can also be the first step towards a costly repair bill. Bottom line, change the oil. Let's go over and talk to Patrick in Watertown, Connecticut. I, you know, there's no other way to say it. It's just, just, just change the oil. Just be done with it. I, you know. So, Patrick, Watertown, Connecticut, 06 Ford Explorer. How can I help you, sir? Hey, Ron. I need your help uh, yes, sir. badly. Go ahead. Um, What's going on? I, uh, I've had this car for um, this truck for 10 years. I love it. I'm just blowing through transmissions. Um, how many and how short a period of time? Um, I believe it began in uh, 2011. I had it rebuilt. Uh, by a local um, local repairman, right. um, had to go back for warranty, and lately it's been, I, I think I've been through six, um, you know, counting the rebuilds, 
Um, I just had one done in May on a remanufactured, and then under warranty, they just had to fix it in July again. They had to do a, a whole new uh, remanufactured transmission. And when they take it apart, what are they, what are they seeing that's failed, or do they give you any indication? Is it because this is unusual? This is not this a. Is, this yeah. is ridiculous. Even with uh, I look back at the the 06 Explorer, the you know the horrible uh, transmission history on those. Um, they're not, they're not finding anything. They're not finding, uh, I said maybe transmission fluid, you know, um, coolant in there or something like that. They're not finding anything like that. Just failure. You, you know, so, but what actually failed, you know, the, let me, let me just finish that, that remark. The automatic transmission guys, the good ones are really smart and they're really fun to listen to because they'll tell you they took apart this trans and they found the second gear sprag or the or the third gear roller or the bop, 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 bop. I mean, they'll 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 nail it down to the nth detail because taking a transmission in and out gets very tedious and costly for them. So yeah. they, they want to eliminate it and do it once and one time only. Uh, you know, these transes aren't that bad. 06 Explorer, yeah, you know, 150,000, it'll go through a trans, maybe 100 if you never serviced it, that kind of a thing. But to go through six in four years, that's, that's you know, what, one every eight, nine, ten months? Yeah, and I'm spending a fortune on rental cars, never mind, you know, I have to pay part of the labor also. Right. Um, I'll tell you what, stay on the line, Patrick. Let me pull over and take the pause. I'm up against the clock. We'll finish it up when we get back. I'm running the car doctor. We'll return right after this. Ron and the car doctor, 855-560-9900. Let's go over. Patrick, you're still there, sir. Yes, sir. You know, when I'm dealing with repetitive of any kind of a failure, I've always got to start back at square one. How many miles have evolved since 2011 when the first trans was put in the truck? Um, I know it was out of warranty. It was out. It was past 36,000. Um, I'm at 177,000 now. Okay, so, so probably yeah, it probably failed around 70,000 miles. So, so in, probably 100,000 since then. So in 100,000 miles, you've put six transmissions in the truck. I believe so. Okay. I, I actually lost count. All all things being equal, sort of sounds like the guy that's rebuilding it isn't doing a great job, doesn't it? Well, I switched um, after the. I had the first one done. He rebuilt it, and right. then I went back under warranty, and he rebuilt it again. Then I went to a different um, different person, and they rebuilt it the first time, and then it's been remanufactured uh, transmission since then. Remanufactured like somebody outside of the repair shop is rebuilding them? Yes. Well, who's the rebuilder? Um, it's a place in Wisconsin. Well, did you think of calling them and saying, are you having any issues and repetitive failures? Um, I just hounded them on Friday, and they're sending me an inspection report so I can get to the bottom of this. Because but. here's the here's the deal, all right? Um, it, it's easy to say, oh, it's the guy that's rebuilding it, but something doesn't make sense here. It almost sounds like it's the guy rebuilding it, or it sounds like it's it's who who, who or how they're installing it. But right, you but know, it's different places also. It's diff- you know right. totally different up businesses, and I'm thinking it could be something unrelated. Like you know, maybe it's getting too hot in there, or something. You know, okay, maybe so transmission cooler I, I, I or- would I would I would hope somebody flushed the trans cooler. I would hope somebody's aware of heat. 
I would hope somebody's looking, you know, for possible fault codes in the engine or the trans controller. Listen, after you talk to the guys in Wisconsin, promise me, call me back next week. Let me know what they say. Let's continue the conversation because I'm, I'm sure there's an end in sight. I'm sure there's some sort of logical conclusion. Six transmissions and 100,000 miles, that's a recipe for disaster, and uh, something doesn't make sense there, so please call me back. I'm Ron Anany in the car, Doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.